Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. So I'm here at the school kids strike for climate action with some of the people who are on strike today. Can you tell us your names and how old you are? Uh, so my name's Ivy and I'm 12 years old. My name is Marta and I am 8 years old. My name's Layla and I'm 11 years old. Inequality is at a 70 year high. Our jobs are going offshore, our jobs are being casualised. 40% of us are trapped in insecure work. The richest 1% have more than the 70% of us at the bottom. And workers will stand up and fight. You've never seen a fight before until you back the Australian workers into a corner and tell them they've got no rights. Those workers will fight. 3CR, union issues and workers' struggles. Feed Radical Radio. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing... Don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. Nice day outside ready for action. We've got a couple of uh, interesting uh, uh, elements for the program today. To begin, we're going to uh, go to the uh, event that happened during the week, uh, Hands Off Venezuela event. It was at uh, the Victoria Trades Hall. It was a a discussion, but uh, the uh, Attache La Fair, I suppose that's how you say it, uh, for Venezuela, who is in, who's uh, lives in Melbourne, uh, he was there and he answered questions. There was uh, some speaking speakers, you know, two speeches. But what I'm going to bring to you is uh, the answers to some of the questions that people posed to him, to give uh, people a clearer understanding of what it's like for people who are actually there in Venezuela, and some of the implications. Uh, for the Venezuelans uh, of the uh, American stance uh, uh, around uh, what is now being clearly understood to be uh, a grab for the Venezuelans' uh, supply of oil. So we're going to start off the program with uh, some answers to questions from that particular event. Uh, after that, we're going to go and have a listen to a chat that I had with uh, one of the filmmakers behind Undermined Tales from the Kimberley, which is now showing at Nova, a fascinating 
look at uh, what it's like on the ground for uh, Indigenous uh, people there and uh, the way resources are being uh, tri- divvied up or the way um, Anglo uh, powers within our state work to wrest away the um, ownership uh, of uh, traditional owners and how it affects people on the ground and uh, the campaign that's ongoing to protect such a beautiful place, uh, Kimberley. And, of course, we've got This Is The Week That Was and later on we're going to have a yarn with Melody about an interactive theatre performance uh, by in disability people. So uh, this is uh, what Solidarity Breakfast is about today, and uh, but we should have a few uh, important messages for you to put on your calendar. Marxism 2019 is Australia's biggest socialist conference, taking place this Easter long weekend from April the 18th to the 21st in Melbourne. Marxism 2019 features international and local guest speakers, including award-winning author and activist Baruz Buchani. Join over 1,000 activists for crucial discussions on how to resist the rise of the right and rebuild the left. With more than 100 sessions, tickets start at just $35 and are available at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter. If you share the growing concern about racism, fascism and the move to the extreme right, come along to our forum on a Bill of Rights for Australia on Sunday the 17th of March at the Unitarian Church, 110 Gray Street, East Melbourne, commencing at 11am. Speakers include Professor Gillian Triggs, Professor Rob Watts, Julian Burnside QC and the Human Rights Law Centre. RSVP to admin at melbourneunitarian.org.au Our democratic rights are under threat. If you care, be there. The Melbourne Unitarian Peace Memorial Church is a 3CR supporter. Brunswick Music Festival, back for two weeks this March, featuring international acts, Flahio, Jay Mascus and Snail Mail, plus an epic local contingent including... Jazz Party, The Next, Ace Swayze and the Ghosts, The Murlocs, Tando, Jade Imagine, Sophie Grophy, Genesis Owusu, Beck Sandridge, Hexdet, and so much more. For the full program and tickets, head to brunswickmusicfestival.com.au. Brunswick Music Festival is a 3CR supporter. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and we're going to go straight to the questions and answers. Well, really the answers that was given by the Atash Dafer from Venezuela at the Melbourne meeting at the uh, Victorian Trades Hall last... Ah, oh, when was it? Such a long time ago. Wednesday, I believe. But anyway, dates are unimportant. Uh, you'll understand what he's talking about by uh, his answers. In this election on the 20th of May... There were more than 100 countries observed, observers from 100 countries. By the way, from Australia, there were observers. So if there was any you know, intent of corruption on the, on the results, 
certainly the observers will let they know. No, there were not one observer that has any um, complaint about the election. Thank you. The first of all, there, there are two two countries. Um, um, in, there are two countries, two Venezuelas. The one that you see in the media, which certainly is amazing. I, I cannot understand. I, I never imagined that this could happen. I have my son there, um, and he works every day. Things are going normal. People is in the streets. People go to the supermarket. Supermarkets are fully stocked now. Certainly, there's a thing. Things are expensive because of also the economic blockade and the economic hand. Because the, the, uh, if something we didn't did good, still, still we didn't do good, is that we don't control the the the, the, the production of many things in my country. It's still under private hands. So they try to sabotage the government. This is evident. So today, the president raised the salary because it's not enough. Tomorrow, and he increased it 20%. Tomorrow, the prices increase 50%. And that's, that's a game between, between the productors, the, I mean, the capitalists, and the government, who is, of course, willing to help the people. There's no doubt at all. The people that are talking here, it's just a small, of course, number of the people that you can see in all my country. There's no doubt at all. The people know to understand that the government is trying to do the best thing for them. There's no doubt at all. Uh, but um, uh, the productions are still on the, on the, on the capitalist system. Uh, I think we need to do a lot also, like Cuba did many years ago, trying to you know, nationalize a lot of production uh, uh, methods of production, but we didn't do it yet. So still we are, you know, with the, depending on these people who are rich people from my country. We have, I need to tell you that we have a lot of rich people in my country. There are many people rich in my country that they make a lot of money, and of course they are doing a bad job with our people now, trying to get more and more money, but uh, on the cost of the people's pocket. I, I'm not sure if I answered your question. I took, there, there's something else I need to tell you. There, in my country, there, we have five powers, public powers. And uh, the first of them is the executive power, which is the president. And, um, and uh, the military depends from the executive power, certainly. But we have the electoral power, which is uh, uh, very honest people who works on the electoral system. Um, we have the Supreme Court with more than 50 magistrates. We have uh, what we call the people power, and it's difficult to explain, but um, it is like the attorney general, the controller, another power that we call Defensoria del Pueblo, like people's defensors. And they three are one power, which is people's power. And um, I think I mentioned, all, and the National Assembly. And the four powers, the other four powers, only the National Assembly, they are all tight, strict appeal to the Constitution. So I, I cannot imagine that we have, um, as the, the media is trying to say, that Maduro control all the powers. It would be impossible to have all the magistrates in the court on his side. It would be impossible to have all the, uh, I mean, directors of the, of the electoral system on their side. It's not possible. There's, in, the, in the magistrate course, in our course, there are people who have a large career. They are not politicians. They only have been judges for their whole life. 
and they understand that the president, and it was elected, and the Constitution established that the president is President Maduro. So there are many things here, you know, which are wrong that you need to know. And, and, and even, even, even though if, if they said, this guy said that it was corrupted, imagine that he said that it was a million votes. Still, President Maduro won with more than three million votes difference. If, it will be, if, if this will be an honest comment from him, which is not, there are some other things behind him, of course. You, you can imagine how U.S. now is, is trying to approach all, all of us, militars, diplomats. They are all run off now because, of course, what they were expecting once they recognized Guaido is that our militars will jump with them to the same side. And they, what they find is a big wall of a lot of strong militars, very strong with the Constitution, very strong with the law, and very strong with the people of my country. Did I answer your questions? I'm sure I'll comment on the specifics yeah. of what you're saying. What would happen if a guy in Australia, and that was something that happens to me with a high uh, level person in the FAT, if a person in Australia steals a helicopter from the airport, from the police, by the way, and he throws two or three grenades in, in the top of the Supreme Court of Australia. If you want that. Yeah. They will kill Maybe he will, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe he will be killed, by the way. Not only locked up, he will be killed because they don't give the chance to not even go to jail. What will happen if somebody in Australia now, one of us, we stop outside, and I said that I am the governor general of this country. They would take me to jail or to uh, insane, you know, a, a psychiatric place because it's, and, and they said that we are anti-democratic. Mr. Guaido is running every day in the streets of Caracas, talking to everybody when he wants to talk because he has, he has his followers. I told you before that we have opposition. The opposition is real, exists. It's not majority, but they exist. So in which country of the world you can go, you will say, I'm the president, you can proclaim the president, you can go into the streets of the city, and anywhere in the world. What will happen if we do this in Saudi Arabia? <laughs> Did I answer your question? So certainly, there are some, there are some what, the, what the opposition calls, I will answer you, the opposition calls uh, 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 politics uh, in jail, uh, politics. Yeah, yeah. Oh, right. there are there are prisoners. There are certainly prisoners that are politics because they did violations of the law. They are not that much, by the way. They inflate the number. They said there are hundreds of. No, that's not truth. But certainly, if you violate the law in any country of the world, you go to jail. So or or not. I, I what 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 will be the, the logical of this? So I can go and kill people in the street as one of the leaders of the opposition did. He calls people. He calls people to to kill people in the street, and he's not going to jail. You think that that's no, good? No, no, no. I know, no. Yeah. After they recognize Guaido, and that's um, under my perspective should happen before. But well, we wait till that moment. Um, we broke relations with the U.S. So that means when you broke relations with a country, means that you need to withdraw 
your diplomats, both sides, withdraw their diplomats from there. In the case of US, because they have a very big embassy in my country, and of course they don't want to leave the embassy alone, they, they leave a very few number of, I don't, they are not real diplomats, because if you don't have relations, you don't have diplomats, um, that are taking care of this, this, this place. But the big majority of them retire by themselves. By the way, we escorted, they asked, by the way, to the government of President Maduro, they did with a letter asked for uh, to be escorted to the airport, what we did. And we respect all their rights in order to do it under the international law, you know, rights. And uh, we did the same thing with our diplomats. We have eight general consulates in US, and we have an embassy in Washington. They all come back home. You know what they did? They were offering money to my colleagues, green cars, money, housing, everything, to ask them to go and recognize Guaido. That's something that we never did with them, because we don't act in the same way. So that's what they did. It didn't work that well, but they did it. My colleagues are now telling their histories. So um, it doesn't, it's not only in the US, that happens everywhere in the world, because you know the US has embassies all around the world, and then they can do this everywhere. So um, what the decision that we, did, we took to broke relations with the US, which under my perspective has happened before, a lot of time before, uh, it happens after they recognize a president who's not a president. So they are breaking the law in my country. In the past, in 2002, we have also a coup d'etat. President Chavez was took away from the palace and he was taken into an island on a helicopter. The United States was clearly, after all the investigations, was clear under, you know, behind this coup d'etat, as always. But in this moment, they are not behind, they are in front. It's clearly, they said clearly. Trump yesterday in Miami, they said, I'm going to take Maduro to Guantanamo if he don't resign. I'm, I'm going to finish with all socialist regimes in Latin America. And he mentions the country. You know, who, who he, he, he feels he is. You know, you know, because you are the big guy, because you have the money, because you are stronger than me, you're going to come and hit me. So in my country, we have uh, much different people than what they, they, he doesn't know the people of my country. The whole uh, army from my country, or militars, that, uh, I mean, the hundred more important militars in my country, they show up saying to him, don't come and harass me. I will, you will take me here with my legs in front if you want to come here to my country. I mean, generals or admirals or high ranks, and also the people, and also Maduro. They, they thought that once they say all these things, I told you before, Maduro will, will you know, resign or you know, will come out or some militants will go against Maduro and that didn't happen. All his money, all the money, all the green cars, all the houses are not enough to pay the conscience of the people of my country.
You're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we're listening to the answers to some questions that were posed to the Atash Daffer uh, from Venezuela at uh, a meeting last week and uh, fascinating stuff, uh, stuff that's not being not he- appearing on uh, our mainstream media reports about Venezuela, which is quite disturbing. Uh, but uh, we're going to hear the rest of his uh Answers because there's some material in there that uh, actually is news, absolutely news to me anyway. Certainly President Chavez has a wonderful view of what it could happen in the future. Um, And he predicted that this could happen. Of course, it happened to him, by the way, so in 2002, so he knows that this could happen. So now we have two million milicianos, what are people from the society, normal people from the streets, that they have training, military training. So two million people who are, you know, available to have any other case, you know, in this case, to affront uh, U.S. intervention. I need to be honest, and this is my own perspective. We can never imagine that we are going to be more stronger than, or stronger than U.S. Even though we have more people, or maybe they cannot bring two million troops to my country, they have a lot of technology that we don't have. So I need to be honest in this. Uh, the only thing which we defer, whether you said is that, and I said before, there's a big difference between 1973 and what's happening in my country now. Militars are different, and I say it again. So militars, we don't have any guy there like Pinochet willing to be the president. They understand that we have a constitution and a law, and they will work, they will work appealing to the Constitution and the law. So there were no, there's no chance for us to have only one of our generals trying to coup President Maduro. They won't do that. And if this will happen, you know, and in the, in, the, in, the, in the case that this could happen, this guy will have a lot of people from the, from the streets coming against him. It won't be easy. It won't be easy, trust me. So that's, what, that's another reason, because our militants don't think about any coup now. And... and um, and also because they have developed a, a very good conscience about the feeling of the people in my country. As President Chavez, most of our militars, and that's a big difference with Chile, they come, they come from poor families. Chavez was the son of a teacher in a school far away from the city, you know, in a rural school, far, far away, and he was very poor when he was young. So that's what is common in our militars which is not common in militaries from other sites in Latin America. Usually they come from rich families, power families, with you no know, uh, blue blood and people that think that they, they can fly. And, and in my case, in our country, yeah, um, um, uh, we don't have militaries that they feel, because they feel what the people, the poor people, they feel, so they understand well what's happening. So they won't go, never go against them, you know. And I'm very sure of this. I, I, that's what I, I'm very sure that this won't finish on the same chapter as uh, La Moneda in 1973. First of all, uh, there was a plane a week ago um, that lands in Valencia. It's a city in the center of the country, full of arms, weapons. And it was, this plane comes from US and um, it was destined to arm a, part of the opposition, of course. Uh, being honest, uh, what this airplane had, which was a lot of arms, were not enough 
to, you know, to face our militars, if this will be the case. So that, that's why I'm really sure that there's nothing going to happen. I mean, there's not going to be, there's a personal position again. It is not possible for, um, to think that we're going to be on a war, because certainly uh, if the war is a civil war, there will not be possibility for the position to be armed or with enough arms to face our militars. By the way, our militaries are very well trained, and certainly they are good armed. Not like U.S., but we have good arms. President Chavez has a very good view, as I said before, and after, and the, after 2002, we uh, um, substitute all our equipment for uh, uh, protect the country. I mean, the equipment, military equipment to, to, to um, protect the country. We change our old F-16, F, F, F which is the planes, American, US ones, for uh, Sukhoi, which are Russians. So we buy a lot of uh, ships from China and Russia. So we have alternative methods of defense now, which give us more independence at the time that we need to face a situation with US. It's not a secret that uh, they stopped selling uh, stock of uh, replaces for aircraft or for our equipment, military equipment, because of course they know that what could happen in the future. But President Chavez, again, he has a very good view of the future, and he realized that this could happen, yes. Certainly there were some shortages. We still have some shortages of food. Not, it's not um, uh, uh, the, uh, the show the media, you know. People is not dying by hunger. And I mentioned before that my son is in my country, um, um, and my family is in, my, in Venezuela, they live there. So I talk to him every day, and he said, I'm impressed because I go to the, and he sent me pictures, I'm at the supermarket, and this is completely stuck. I said before, things are expensive, which could make, you know, people pass a strong situation, a strong moment, trying to buy their food and their things. But certainly, there's not a lack of food now. Maybe I said before a lack of choice, but not a lack of food. So people is not dying by hunger. We don't eat each other, as the media here in Australia said. I, I, I remember like a year ago, I saw, I saw the media here said that we were eating horses. And, and, and many countries, by the way, in Argentina, which is next to us, they eat horse. It's a, it's a common food. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. And here, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But we, we, yeah, yeah. But we don't eat horses. We don't have the culture of eating horses. And they said that we kill a horse on a zoo because we were, this, well, my, 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 my compatriots were, were hungry and they were eating the, the horse. Which is, that was said here, I saw it here in the, in the media. I don't remember which channel. But it's amazing. That doesn't happen in my country. Of course, we have economic situation, but people still have health system, which is strong. We still take care of the people. I want to answer your question. I, I didn't finish uh, with the food. And you know something, why we don't accept the, uh, the aid from US? It's a good question. Because you know what is the aid from, from US? The US aid, which is the, the, the you know, the orgasm from US who brings this. Because these are boxes, I can show you after this. This is a, a box, small box that contains two shampoos, two toothbrush, brush to toothpaste and like a towel. That's the aid that they are sending to. And I need to tell you something, you know, there are 20,000 boxes of this. So this, this will be for 20,000 families. You know the, pro, the, the food program that the, pro, the, the government has, it gets up to 6 million families every 15 days with a big box of food. 
not with a shampoo or a toothbrush yes, or a toothpaste. Yeah. And you know something else. They bring this, this I mean, cleaning uh, um, uh, hygienic products. After they bring some diet, dry, dry food, you know dry food? They, these portions of food that they come dry, that you put some water. The, what they bring originally was dry food. In my country, people doesn't eat dry food. They don't like dry food. Maybe in Asia and other places, people like dry food, but we don't eat dry food. So they realized this, and then they took it out, and they bring these shampoos. So how much can this last if you have only 20,000 kids? This will be nothing. 20,000 kids will get only 20,000 families. That, that won't get further more than the, 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 the border of Venezuela. Yeah. So, yeah, and certainly we know that behind the, 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 the aid, it is not the aid, it's something else, you know. So they are trying to push us to take this aid, which we don't need. We, the Red Cross in Colombia, they said, I don't know if you, you read this, but they said that they will not get in, in, involved in this. In, in order to be humanitarian aid, they, in, in the international law, they need to be three factors. That first of all, need to be requested by the country who's suffering. The, 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 the necessity. That's not in this case. You need to request, you need to request a third party involvement in order to be, to be uh, like the Red Cross. Usually Red Cross or any other movements, they help for this. And they didn't need this, by the way. And there's a third one, which is, uh, it need to be an obvious, uh, um, um, an obvious um, um, crisis situation, which is not obvious. So as I told you before, more people die by hunger in Colombia, where they are bringing this aid, than in my country. So why they don't leave this in Colombia? <laughs> the other thing, and I, I, I finish, Russia, right now, we request help from Russia. They are sending, they are sending planes back to my country, a lot of planes to my country with food and medicines. Last week, we bought medicines from Qatar. And an airplane was supposed to transfer these medicines to an Iberia aircraft, which is the Spanish airline in Madrid, to fly to Caracas. So the Spanish government took these medicines out from the, from the plane. And they steal our medicines. Even though if you can pay for them, because we cannot pay for medicines and food, because if you set a transfer, they will steal your money, they steal our money. Even if you make it, you can pay it, as we did this time with Qatar, we lose the medicines. So how can we, you know, not be, you know, on a, sh on a shortage of medicines if even if we go and buy the medicines, they don't allow it to come to my country? What can we do, you know? So it's nothing that you can do against this big power, you know? And they have tentacles all around the world. What Spain did in this case is something that we can demand in an international court. Well, opposition is very sad with the, with the Pope, with the Vatican because certainly the Pope took a strong position, uh, the Pope, I mean, Pope Francis, the Vatican, took a strong position with the law. So he, they are not interfering what's happening in Venezuela. They understand that that's a deal that should be solved by Venezuelans without interference of any other countries. And uh, they, the Pope Francis has said some, you know, uh, I mean, phrases which they don't like. For example, they said, leave them do their things alone. And opposition doesn't like that. Leave alone. So they, let, let us solve the situation alone. That was the Vatican. But we have what we call the, the uh, Episcopal Conference, which is like the highest Catholic uh, priest in my country, 
which are a opposition party. They took openly in the media a position of, uh, I mean, a, a position against the government. So there is a big difference with what, because between what's happening in the Vatican and what's happening in the Episcopal Conference. <clears throat> so some priests, by the way, they are minority. Honestly, they are not that much, but they are the cupola of the, of the uh, Catholic Church in my country. They are against government and they are a political party. Openly, they take position. So um, Vatican is watching very close what's happening with their priests in my country, all around the world. You know what's happening with priests. It's not a secret. But uh, of course, they are not dancing at the same piece that the Vatican is asking to dance. Did I answer? What about the army? Are the army influenced? Uh, no, I don't think so. No, not at all. Nothing related with uh, with no, because if they were influenced by the Catholic couple of the church in my country, they would be against the government. Uh, um, but there's a big difference again the between the Vatican and the, this priest. Small, little amount of priests in my country, but they have the power of the church. And you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. And in the studio, we've got uh, Melody and Vicky, who are part of a group who are doing an interactive uh, theatre piece. So you've got to describe to me, Melody, what that actually means. Okay, so the interactive theatre piece is basically a group of uh, 12 performers and they are basically interweaving with the audience. So the audience are asked to stand through the performance, if they can, if they're able-bodied. And the um, performers actually weave and move in between the audience members. So they're kind of incorporated and there's actually a nice little surprise towards the end as well that kind of helps connect um, the audience and the performers together. So how long is the piece? It goes for about 24 minutes, but the whole there's a soundscape that goes for about 30. Okay, so does that mean that the audience is ex- expected to stand for the entire time? Um, there are seats um, and... There'll so you can a, get up and down. Yeah, you can sit up and down if you. Yeah, you're encouraged to do that. Yes, share seats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And okay. it, it's in the outdoor environment, so it's in a um, in the Glade at Gasworks Arts Park. Yep. So it sort of also incorporates the environment as well. well is Gasworks called Port Melbourne? Um, no, Albert Park. Albert Park. Yeah, that's right. So it's yeah, it's just off Pickle Street. Okay, so it's a, it's obviously an evening. Of, is it in the evening or no, is it in the it, afternoon? It's an afternoon um, event. So yeah. it's a, the weekends. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's next Saturday at two p two. No, sorry, next Saturday at one thirty. Yeah. Um, and then another show at two thirty p.m. Oh, how exciting! Yeah. So, so how did this happen? This uh, whole piece. How, uh, how, what was the inspiration? The inspiration was basically a story that I heard a friend tell me about her relationship and how it formed. And then I took it into a more global kind of context um, of about human connection and, you know, how in this day and age it's so easy to be um, isolated and um, sort of disconnected, um, especially with technology, um, sort of 
take you know, taking over in a way. So, so it was. It, it's actually with uh, disabled uh, performers. It's. It's. Uh, is that right? Is is it de- it's, it's d- a, deliberately there is, about that or there is. Um, there is it, a mean, range. Of, there's like people from all walks of life, all abilities. So not just necessarily with disabilities. Yeah, right. Um, so yeah, they. Um, well, I mean, yeah, I was just wondering if that was a target. If, 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 if it was a target. I mean, where did you get your pool of people? So Vicky, you're one of the performers. That's right. How did you get involved? Well, I've known Melody for quite a few years. We were both in the same theatre group together called RAG, which is another all abilities group. And then when Melody came up with this idea, we were all encouraging her. And then she asked me to come on board and I thought it would be, it's a nice piece of different sort of theatre. I grew up on the rigid three-act plays and that sort of thing. So I'm finding in my later life, it's wonderful to join into these programs. Yeah, yeah. Um, And it's original. That's the beauty of it. It, it, You actually are contributing to the lexicon of theatre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, when you say all, what what was it? What's the term? All, all abilities. All abilities. Yes. Um, so, tell me about the philosophy behind that. Um, okay. So it's just basically to incorporate everyone. You know, um, it doesn't matter um, if they're skilled or they've got um, if they've got a disability. It's to work with the quality of what they've got, so of what the performers have and what they've got to bring to the table. So it's observing observing what their qualities are and using those. And so when you wrote this piece, which isn't a three-act play in the conventional way, Mm. how, how did you synthesise the pieces? Did you base it on the people that you had in in the crew to to be performers or did you is it that organic or and can it change if someone was going to put it on again would it depend on who it was that was in it um okay so basically um it was it was structured around a a pre-recorded narration and then it was devised with the group so we went into workshops five weeks ago and we came up with some workshops where pe- we came up with words, specific like word association games and stuff. And um, we came up with movements. That's right. To, yeah. um, to kind of interact with those words that were significant to the group. And, and that's how we kind of, you know, came about um, coming up with the organic so, so you, uh, when you said that it was based on uh, a relationship that someone, a story, yep. someone's uh, story. Yep. Uh, so there are key elements that are set because it's part of that yes. story. Yeah, and it was it's to not make it so obvious about the story because I think they wanted to keep it a little bit anonymous. Oh, of course, um, it's personal. <laughs> yeah, um, I I took it into a more global context about, you know, um, searching and, and you know, um, So you were trying things. to un- unwrap the, uh, the feeling and the meanings for that person. Yes. That came out of the whole notion of having a relationship. 
Yeah, and and just even you know, um, not even that, just you know, human connection. Yeah, in that more broader sense, right? Is that how, like, for example, how you and I would, you know, um, see each other, you know, on yeah. the street or whatever. Would we would we feel like there was a draw like a, a draw card or whatever to yeah. you know connect, or would we feel like we needed to stay away? It's sort of those kind of themes. Oh, throughout. really interesting. Yeah, yeah, cool. And so obviously, uh, it does. In that original question, which is uh, if this was going to be put on again, it mm. would depend on who was in it. Yeah. Because when you did that original five weeks ago, that original working together, workshopping, yeah. uh, you were, they were, the actors were actually contributing to the script. Yeah, and I'm, I'm hoping that if we do do it again, um, that um, we will use the original actors, um, you know, yeah. and then, you know. And then they'll reflect on what it is that they yeah. felt the first time. And we can build yeah. on it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and build on it. So does that mean, just as a matter of, interest mm. does that mean that you're going to film it uh it'll be yeah there'll be video there'll be a videographer there to kind of capture what's going on but it's also nice to have um the audience involved yes um this is a bit, this is a really big deal and this <laughs> is uh in terms of uh the creative process this is a very uh, interesting uh experiment that you're yeah. involving in it's wonderful. I've had a lot of support. Um, it's been supported by the City of Port Phillip Council, by this um, Cultural Development Fund. So I'm very, very fortunate to have this sort of, it's a very rare opportunity to have, um, you know, funding backing this project. Yeah. But they see it as a very exciting, ambitious project. So I'm really pleased that I've been given this opportunity. So how many yeah. actors are there? There's um, 12 12 of us and some people, some of the actors have never done interactive or immersive theatre. And and it's kind of, uh, what do you call it, uh, improvisation, isn't it? Yes, yes, a lot of it is that, but a lot of it is being able to make eye contact with the people who are in Mm. the audience so that when you're walking around... You can just make a soft eye contact with someone. Um, that is a little daunting for some people. Mm. I, I've done immersive theatre before, so I kind of know um, what it's like. But I think it's a it's a beautiful piece. To me, it's a weaving of the tapestry of life, that we're woven into life. Everything is a living creature everything is woven into this life and that's what we're trying to present. Now when you're talking about immersive uh, theatre that you're you're as the journey of actors or people who haven't even acted before mm-hmm. that what they're doing is understanding that there is the various elements of social structure mm-hmm. there are a whole range of social structures mm-hmm. that allow people to uh, li- uh, live with each other or yeah, that's what they're for. Yeah. And and they've taken a long time to be developed and they're different in different cultures. Mm. Um, did, does, that must be a conference, as confronting for the actors as it will be for the people in the audience. Yeah. Yes, I think so. I think uh, did, have you noticed those journeys for people? 
Yes, I think there are, um, like I said, there are some people who will be a little bit nervous about it and probably won't do it as well. And I'm sure there will be audience members who will go. They're not used to having actors so close to them, weaving around them. Mm. Um, You know, most people when they think of theatre think of a stage and the audience is down looking up at the stage, but this is all taking part around them. So it's going to be very interesting to see how everybody interacts with each other on this. Yeah, it's going to be encouraged too that um, that it is a safe space and that, yeah, it's, it's encouraged that, you know, it, that we do support one another. Because, you know, that's kind of the message is that, you know, um, <clears throat> is that connection is, is about being proactive and it's not about being complacent. Oh, it's and about, I guess I guess what you're really doing is uh, doing an analysis of what it is to be human. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very fascinating <laughs> sort of uh, process. How, how do people become part of this process? Like you said, the, the events next Saturday... Yep. It's um, at one thirty pm mm-hmm. and it's also going to be repeated at 2.30pm and it's at the Gasworks Art uh, Park, which yep. is just it's, off Pickle Street in Albert Park. It's the best way to find it is on the corner of Foot and um, Graham Street. That's right. Um, it's not hard it's to find at, once you get there. It's at the Glade, there. at the Glade, in, yeah. in the actual park itself, so yes. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's an, a really nice um, place to to do it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a lovely place to do it. How, how much um, time, I mean, five weeks you started, yeah. a, a very intense uh, work mm. program? Yes, it was. And the first couple of weeks we were all sort of walking around going, hmm. You know, we're, we're kind of doing the same sort of movements but in our own different ways. So although people are doing a similar movement, everyone has their own way of doing it. And yesterday we finally put the whole lot together. And <laughs> did, did it feel a bit, you know, with Tai Chi you do movements and you repeat and you repeat and repeat and then one day... It, that movement actually clicks. Yes, I know I've done Tai Chi. Yeah. And is, I it, is it like that? It, it can be, yes. I yeah. find that, that it's that. And I think yesterday was everyone I spoke to afterwards all said, oh, wow, what a great day because it kind of all came together. We had the music, we had mm. the songs, we had everything. So it's just a lovely moving yeah. piece. So I think it will be lovely to watch. So you've got a large range of age groups because there's like 12 people. Uh, yeah, well, I'm the oldest. <laughs> yeah, you're the oldest and then there's uh, young young and middle-aged. There's some younger and, people, yes, yeah. and middle-aged and... Whatever, and yeah. obviously both uh, or three genders at least. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So so the whole thing, and the music, where does the music come from? Um, uh, the music has been put together by um, Lisa Greenway, um, Lisa is a, a sound designer, yeah. sound producer, and she's sat down with me for countless hours and we've gone through and, you know, I've given her some ideas and she's designed the whole piece. It's a, um, It's got live narration by, um, by 
uh, a, a man called Ali. And so, you know, that was really nice to have that cultural um, and linguistically diverse um, um, language or um, sort of accent um, to kind of give it... Oh, it's like radio because yeah. uh, it's so personal, very yeah. quiet, uh, very close, yeah, mm. it's just, very intimate. Yeah, and also um, there's like elements of effects and there's, you know, also um, some music that's sung in Hebrew and it, it sort of, you know, gives it a global feel, um, which is really lovely. Um as well, so it sort of brings it into that universal kind of love piece, you know, <laughs> all that sort all of... The, all those good juicy yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much for That's coming right. in and telling us about this. This no is very exciting and yeah. good luck. Oh, thanks, oh, thank Annie. you. Yeah, yeah, very good. So if you want to be there, one thirty at uh, p.m. next Saturday down at uh, Gasworks at the Glade and also repeated at 2.30 p.m. Do people oh. have to pay? No, it's free, and the first performance is a relaxed performance. Okay. So that's for people who who have got audio kind of sensitivities because it's going their speakers are surround. Yep. So it it can be quite intense with all the layers. It's also um, audio described through the whole thing, and there's an Auslan interpreter um, for the relaxed performance as well. So. Oh, that's yeah. fantastic! Yeah. I can't believe how fantastic it sounds. Oh, we have to now you. move on to um, This Is The Week That Was. But thank you very much. Thank you, Annie. Thank you. See you. One, two, three, four. A week solidarity, Bricky Team listener, when we open with a delightful musical duet in a tribute to Lennon and McCartney by that spectacular double act, Matthias Rotten Toother and Joe Hackey, The Workers, performing at the door of a flight to anywhere to get away from it all. You say hello, I say goodbye. Goodbye, 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 goodbye world. Their favourite travel agent run by the caring business class party treasurer with Joe as a big shareholder, which seems like an ideal agent to book through because they don't send you nasty debt collector letters or send the collectors after you when you don't bother to pay the bill. Matthias went two years and not one nasty letter. And it's most credible that for those two years he had no idea he hadn't paid the bill and wasn't aware until the media contacted him and he hadn't noticed he hadn't paid the $3,000 bill that Goodbye World hadn't docked his credit card. Uh, Yes, Matthias, uh, what's your job again? Minister for Finance. And Joe, your million-dollar shareholding had nothing to do with giving huge government contracts to your party's treasurer. None whatever. I object strongly to the implications in your question. It's a Labour Party dirty tricks campaign, Joe, to avoid the real issue. People smugglers invading true blue Aussie. And the only consolation in all this is that the socialists treating these no-proper-papers queue-jumping illegal boat people as real human beings by removing them from their concentration camps for medical treatment before sending them straight back to their concentration camps to get it it all over again doesn't run to allowing them to be real human beings in true blue Aussie. But their compassionate policy is they'll work harder to find a country to ship them off to as long as it isn't true. 
Still speaking of people smugglers and boats, after his strong stand last week leading to Big Supremo scuttle them more lash son and the team chorusing disaster, the socialists, you know, like, are weak on, like, you know, like, border protection. It was little Billy who went to water and said he'd agree to them being moved to the Christmas Island concentration camp for treatment and then spent the rest of the week with his team explaining he didn't really mean what he wasn't sure he meant. More proof of the strength we can expect if little Billy becomes big supremo and still on the no proper papers lot enjoying our holidays, holiday island hospitality at great public expense. As we pointed out last week, the Paladin Group offers a shack on Kang Island with no contact address, vacuuming 423 mil of our hard-earned over the past 22 months to provide security on the Manus Island concentration camp, helped by ripping off the local workforce no end. We mentioned the Minister for Keeping Us Secure, Constable Peter Duffer, said he couldn't reveal details of the contract for security reasons. But then, as the proverbial hit the fan more and more and he was covered in it, justified his role as the responsible minister by declaring he had nothing to do with the contract. I knew like you know nothing. Somewhat unnecessary given we all know he knows nothing and proudly displays it, but although the Trubler Wazzy Capitalist Review led the exposure of this rort, it couldn't help itself this week. Laying much of the blame for Paladin being handed millions of our hard-earned with no tender process on refugee advocates who forced big corporate transfer the uh, refugees to abandon the contract and change its name to Broad Spectrum to avoid the ongoing ignominy, hoping people will forget that Broad Spectrum felled the refugees. But anyway, listener, if we've attended any rally supporting illegal boat people or done anything to suggest they should be released, Released from their island paradise prisons, then I hate to say it, but it's all our fault that we're all being ripped off. And the responsible minister knows absolutely nothing about it and therefore can't be held responsible for that for which he is responsible. Although Constable Duffer can show he can be responsible, like his attempts to deport from Trublawazi to indigenous men. Even by their standards, a first, deport Indigenous first people. The ultimate solution to the problems these bloody Indigenous people cause, like also wanting to be treated like real human beings. In the look for the silver lining department, and why do so many people always look on the dark side of life, and for that matter, in this case, death? when we should look at the positives, like that latest tailings problem in Brazil at another Vale mine. Well, Vale, as they are regularly announcing Vale for their neighbours who pay for living so close to their mine with their lives and all their environment. But the financial media within days quite properly looked at the bright side. Vale was forced to postpone iron ore exports while it attempted to unearth the bodies, 311 or so at last count, including those they may never find, and the putrid tailings that burst into the countryside created a, a bit of an environmental damage. But good news. The Vale export postponement bet the price of iron ore rocketed, and companies like our very own BHP for bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter, and Rio Tainto the Planet and all the other great responsible corporations can make a killing thanks to the killing. And it won't be long before they settle compensation for the villagers and villagers destroyed by the previous disaster, in which bloody huge polluter was a partner. It's just that these things fix 
fixing up the mess situation take a bit of time, particularly because they just have to string them out for years in the courts. They believe in real justice, uh, justice long as they can string them out Why the good good people of what's left of them, or what's left of the good people in Bhopal, are still awaiting the post-Bay promised compensation, and the companies can't be criticised for observing all the legal niceties, like making sure they never have to meet the costs. And the bloody huge polluter and Rio et al. shareholders must see the 300-plus villages no longer existing as commercial heroes. Why, thanks to them, iron ore could reach $100 a tonne. And it's not all bad news for barley, for it saves the exorbitant and wasteful costs of making its mine safe. But the same financial pages did cast a shadow over this otherwise good news story. The reduction in iron ore on that great deity, the market, the very cause of the good news, also meant there would be a related reduction in shipping. The poor great shipping corporates who provide work for third world seafarers will see a fall in profits. Oh dear, poor dears. So there was some bad news after all. Good news, though, for those Catholic sex-molesting clergy and the church generally, and if Matthias and Joe's explanation over that goodbye world business was most credible, here's the most credible story of the week. Good news is our old mate, Ila Papa, Franga the First, nailed the real culprit attacking the church. It is the devil, Ila Diablo obviously unveiled to Il Papa in some divine revelation, meaning the clergy weren't responsible. And it's hard to believe, as he outlined his revelation to the assembled faithful, waiting for them to answer his clues, he was forced to plead, I can't hear you! It's as if they didn't realise it was the devil. Their ignorance of this most credible explanation was presumably also the work of the devil. Which brings us to Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Little Billy Shorten Ambition's new policy to increase the compensation package for victims of the financial rorts to two million or so. And Little Billy, there's a feeling the compensation packages offered to victims of institutional sexual abuse are extremely inadequate. Would you also increase them to a more appropriate level? Look, I sympathise with those victims. I express sorrow to them. But every cent of compensation is less money available for the good works the churches do. And anyway, it now seems we should ask the devil to pay. Good point. Have you got his address? Now, while he's looking that up, speaking of the Trublowozzi Capitalist Review, can't the odd headline be misleading? Story this week, Reforms to Help Protect Buyers. Story about the cladding disasters and moves to protect residents. And next to it, Push for Building Watchdogs. Obviously a body to protect those ripped off by developers and builders. Well, no. Push for Building Watchdogs is the poor developers and builders in the big construction industry screaming for protection against the out-of-control evil construction unions and their fear a socialist government led by that fearless defender of working people, Little Billy, will make it easier for the out-of-control evil unions to be even more out-of-control and evil. Hard to imagine, giving their levels of out-of-control and evil already. The same victims of all this don't seem to be so critical of the same unions as they, the unions, run a campaign to ensure the Socialist Party does not oppose the Adani, the Planet coal mine and other coal mines across the country.
while mega coal behemoth Glenn Rotten Tudor says it will put a cap on coal production, which the usual suspects interpreted as a giant contribution to addressing climate change. So instead of coal, what will you be producing? Oh, well, coal. And, and how will that help the environment? Well, with any sort of luck, the price of coal should go through the roof. Finally, the former minister for keeping evil unions under control, Michaelia Kosh, the workers, has demanded an apology from those who suggest she tried to avoid investigation over that raid on Little Billy's former union office by avoiding investigation. It's a socialist plot to divert attention from the people smuggler invasion. They're so sincere, aren't they? Good morning. You're listening to 3CR. Delicious piece of music. That's from Tasha Sampala. It's called uh, Garden Wall, if you want to follow it up. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and uh, we're moving on to an interview I did with uh, Nicholas Awafal, who is one of the filmmakers of a film called Undermine Tales from the Kimberley, uh, a film made by Nicholas and Stephanie King. Now, um, I've got a couple of double passes. It's on at the Nova at the moment and if you've got time you might want to give us a call on 94198377 to give me your address so I can send you the uh, uh, complimentary passes. It admits two. You'll be over the next week at Nova but uh, I'll let uh, Nicholas describe what it is that uh, the film is about because uh, it's a fairly important film. Okay, so we've got uh, Nicholas Ruffle. Nicholas Ruffle, yes. Ruffle in the studio today, and uh, he's talking to us about a great film called Undermined, Tales from the Kimberley. Can you tell me what the impetus was for starting to make this film? The impetus was actually when the federal government and the Western Australian state government announced that they were going to cut off funding to remote Indigenous communities. And then Tony Abbott made that famous statement about not supporting people's lifestyle choices. And 
that just sort of spurred uh, Stephanie King and myself to start investigating what was behind that story. Obviously, there was a big backlash against that, protests around the country, and the government sort of backed away from those cuts, uh, direct cuts. But, you know, as we started to find out from people on the ground up there, they felt like the pressures of industry and development in the area were what was driving trying to move people off the land. Yeah, uh, as um, I've always said, uh, and I'm sure I'm not the only person, but uh, all Aboriginal policy is really mining policy. Would that be... <laughs> so true. And in this case, it's not just mining, it's irrigated agriculture. It's, uh, you know, the cattle industry has a lot of power up there. But, yeah, mining's one of the key things. And at the moment, since we finished the film, fracking is a big threat in the region. Oh, it's unbelievable. Uh, so you decided to – how did you decide to actually uh, marry the story? You, you've actually uh, decided to uh, focus on uh, individual stories. Yes. We we wanted to tell stories from people on the ground. We wanted them to tell their own story, really. We wanted to make an observational documentary. And so we went in and just started interviewing people all around different communities and talking to people in the towns and then slowly during the process sort of filtered out – who we thought we should focus on because their stories, one of the stories, the one with, cattle, with the cattle industry with Kevin Oscar and his family, was sort of unfolding as we were there. So that drove us to focus on him and that story. It was just uh, serendipitous, I guess. And then with Albert, I think his story uh, was just... That's a, Albert Wigan. Albert Wigan was a, you know, he was an activist and very involved in the James Price Point protest that eventually stopped the development of the gas hub there. And it was just an example of the kind of things that can happen up there if people aren't trying to protect their land and the environment. And even though that was slightly in the past, Albert's personal story also, I think, really lets people from the outside into the world and gets to see through a very articulate young man, uh, gets introduced to the Kimberley. And then the third story uh, with June and Mervyn was really about the river and also about them not getting access to their homelands since the cattle station had changed hands and was now in the hands of Gina Reinhardt and they didn't have the same relationship and couldn't get access to the land. Um, it's, a bit, it's a bit like an Oliver Twist story. Please, sir, can I have some more? You know, every time they want to go and sit beside the river, they have to go and bleed. Yeah. And they never had that situation before, so they they were, you know, really up in arms about it. And it's such a poignant scene, I think, when they're standing at the gate to this property that she grew up on, and they can't, they're not allowed to enter. Mm. Do you come from across there, or is I don't. I'm actually from Sydney, and and honestly, I was living overseas for a long time, and only came back to Australia about five, six years ago, and. Uh, you know, I was looking for a project to do in Australia and was spending a lot of time traveling in Australia and suddenly got involved in this. And it was a very slow, organic process. I spent a lot of time out there in the last three or four years. But it's, 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 it's almost like this is the story to tell, isn't it? This is the story of uh, Indigenous Australia trying to enlighten Anglo-Australia. I think so. I absolutely think so. And you know, I think if people watch the film, it might pique their interest to go out into these places and to speak to people and learn from from this culture that we've shunned for so long. You know, it really opened up Australia in a different way to me personally <coughs> as a white filmmaker. And people out there were, that helped us with the film and Albert Wigan was one of them, was 
became a producer on the film, were so generous with their time and stories. And I feel like it's a place that I'll go back to for the rest of my life now. How, how long did it take? Because it was over time. It was over three and a half, four years. We were out there doing research at first and then we were out there filming and we worked with a local cameraman, Mark Jones, who's based in Broome. So that opened up a lot of things to us too. He used to work out there with Malcolm Douglas and knew a lot of people and knew the land. Is that Malcolm Douglas, the one that was a friend of mm. Albert's father? That's right. Yeah. He was a sort of that adventure filmmaker. That was a fine story. Amazing. Albert's personal story is amazing. and uh, His father's story is amazing. Those pictures are amazing. Yeah. We were very fortunate to have their support and be able to access that footage as well, which opens up Albert's story and his father's story and gives so much sort of context and background to, to what's going on there. So we were out there for at least six months filming in sort of one month, six-week six blocks over a two-year period and then going back and doing consultation, showing people edits of the film. Most of the editing and the production stuff was done out of Sydney, which was a shame. Uh, that we weren't out there all the time, but that's just the way that the way it worked. Yeah, it's the nature of the beast. But is it a little bit like the uh, dust gets into your pores or the sand gets into your pores? Yeah, absolutely. The dust gets into your pores, the air gets into your pores, the beautiful skies, we were sleeping outside. You know, the earth is so rich and alive there. You feel like you can eat it. You know, you really feel like... There's something that gets into your bones and in what Albert would call your lian, your spirit, that you really feel that this place hasn't really been disturbed. And I think that's one of the great values of it to Australia and to us and to the world, in fact. You know, it's, the coastline, for example, is one of the pristine coastlines in the world, second undisturbed only to Antarctica, which is completely frozen Ooh. over. Mm. You can go down the coast for over a 1,000 kilometres and you won't even see a light on the shore. Oh, it's, well, that's perfect place to go and disturb it and destroy it and make money out of it. <laughs> well, exactly. And you only have to look south to the Pilbara where there's massive mining going on and has been for a long time. And, and that's why people up there know what could happen and they're very protective out of it and quite organised and passionate to make sure that they don't become the next Pilbara. Well, you show through Albert Wiggins and his story about Beagle Bay and uh, the uh, AGL uh, portside gas uh, hub that they wanted to build there. Uh, that was a really fascinating piece of uh, uh, filmmaking. It was, and also uh, archival uh, footage. Uh, there's a lot in that, because, politically speaking, because it actually brings up the business about native title uh, and fight back, and the actually disparaging way that uh, the authorities deal with uh, Aboriginal leaders from the land councils. Yeah, it's astounding when you dig into that story and the history there, which was only a few years ago, you know, five to seven years ago, what went on, you know, the, the amount of police that were brought in when the protests started from Perth, the way that the, the state government was dealing with the land councils out there and manipulating them, dividing communities, making deals with certain people, you know, um, also using native title you know, twisting and using native title loopholes to, to make deals, to, to make sure that these deals were rammed through. And that's one of the things we discovered, and many people up there spoke to us about the, the nature of native title, and it, that it's not 
land rights, that it doesn't give people any kind of protection or any veto. It gives them a seat at the table, but there's a six-month window in which a deal has to be done, and if, if, the, if there's not some kind of consensus made, then the government and the industries can use native title to get the deal done. God, that sounds like uh, industrial relations law in Australia as well. Oh, commonality well, here. It's a, it's a form of it. And, um, you know, I think that's one of the myths that we've tried to dispel in the film, even though we don't go into the nitty-gritty of native title, that, that it's not land rights, which is what a lot of people in the general public probably think it is. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's one of the reasons why I brought this up. I, uh, you really do get that across. I thought there's a really important message to get across. Um, and there was a piece of footage several times where you've got uh, the man from the... Uh, uh, Aboriginal uh, Land Council standing there in a suit with a man from the industry in a suit and then some government representative coming along. The government rep- representative completely disses the Aboriginal Land Council man and goes and shakes hands with this guy. It's, I mean, the body language was incredible, fantastic edit. Just unbelievable. We spend a lot of time in the edit. You, don't, you, you let them hang themselves. Yeah. Well, we had to be careful also legally what we were doing and what we were saying around a lot of these issues. We had to vet the film several times with barristers and so on. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm. We had a bit of pushback coming from WA and, uh, you know, we had to be careful. So we, as you said, we just sort of showed the situation and tried to hint at what's going on by letting people go about their business. We were very lucky to have some... uh, access to a lot of footage from different filmmakers that were living and and out on the front lines of those protests that shared them with us. Yeah, that's very good. Uh, it was very nicely put together. It was also good that you actually got to speak to the man from the land council so that, you know, he wasn't the, en- he wasn't the enemy. He wasn't the bad guy. He could explain himself how he got it caught into this. Yeah, that's Wayne Bergman. It's, it's a really interesting situation because, you know, he was – sort of on the wrong side of history, in yeah. a sense, at that time. And now, five years, six years has passed. He's had time to reflect on it. He's had community interaction since. And, you know, he's sort of say, talking to us in the film about the pressures that he was under at the time from government, from industry, and from certain uh, pockets of his community it's to make a compelling. deal. very compelling. Yeah, very compelling. It t- tells you a really lot about the uh, political situation and the individual tensions and how terrible it can be. Mm. Yeah, it was very good, uh, very interesting. Um, we've covered a couple of things that were just fantastic to learn and feel in this film because there's lots of things to feel in this film. Uh, one, The uh, story about the cattleman and his family and the deal that they thought they were making and mm. the deal that the Anglos thought that they were making is quite illuminating as well. It, it's quite tragic, really. Yeah, it's a terrible situation um, that... You know, this, the Bunaba people got themselves into with a, a joint venture with outsiders that have come in making promises to help, uh, you know, fund the, the muster and put inject money into the cattle station. And they thought they were making a cooperative deal. And again, we had to be careful about what we said or didn't say because the legal matters between those two groups going on. But And, and whether, they ca- whether that outsider came in with the best of intentions, as he claims, you know... Th- it's hard to say, but in the end, it became a real mess, and they were tied up in legal situation. They brought in outsiders to run the farm for a while. The Bunaba people and Kevin Oscar and his family had to leave. Um, Their own land? 
their own land and the you know that station that he'd been running and no money was coming into the community because they weren't able to do the muster because of all the legalities going on around this joint venture which now uh, as an update those people have left and we're sort of back to square one now they're looking at okay how can we get this back on track kevin's back on the station and his boys are back after three or four years of, of fighting and they've sort of lost all that time and opportunity, but they're, they're determined to make a go of it again. And I think one of the strengths of the people that you meet in the film is, even though there are some negative and sad stories, there's a lot of resilience and strength and, and some hope in these people. They're, they're going to make it work one way or another. Well, what, what they say is that, you know, country is country, hmm. ultimately. That whatever... That was why it was so fascinating, uh, that, uh, I mean, it's a bit like you've got a, you know, filmmakers, they've got a film that they want to make and, uh, except it's much more important, a film that you want to make that's your dream, you go and get producers, they give, oh, you, people who give you money and then the people who give you the money say to you, oh, I don't like you, I'm going to get another director in. Yeah. It's exactly, it's exactly the same idea, isn't it? Except it's yeah. worse, of course. It's, it's country. It's country, it's generations of, that have lived on the land, it's their connection to country. Um, you know, we were lucky enough to meet incredible people up there and just sort of let, let us into their lives. You know, the other story with June and, and Mervyn on the river, they took us around so many sites and talked about all the development possibilities with ag- agriculture, irrigated agriculture, and how all these big pastoralists want to take thousands of gigaliters out of the river in the wet season to start growing crops and turn it into a new ord scheme uh, at Fitzroy Crossing, which they're, you know, they're horrified of because they're constantly looking to the south, to the Murray-Darling, and saying, we don't want those problems up here. We've got an untouched, unspoilt river, the only major river in Australia that's not dammed and not um, you know, under a lot of irrigation pressure, a place that you know, is unspoilt and could be you know, an example to the country and the world of, of there is a big push at the moment to get it listed as World Heritage, actually, which is something that uh, I think people are going to hear about next year, especially if we have a change of government. You've shown this film around Australia. We've started to. We've been showing it in film festivals, and now we've got a release that's coming out this week around Australia. We did a screening, a Q&A screening in Perth with Albert, uh, on Monday, and I how did, did that go? I did one in Sydney on Monday as well. It went really well. We're in the Western Australian newspaper today, and there's, we've had a lot of press around it. And uh, I think it, I think especially out there, it's creating a, a discussion, you know. And that's what we're hoping for. And the film comes out this week in, in cinemas, so you can find it. Uh, all the details are on our website at undermindfilm.com. Um, and, you know, we're also trying to get it out. We've been showing it to communities in the Kimberley and we're trying to get it out to smaller smaller locations too through a system that we've built on the website where people can request to have a screening. Great. Okay. So how did the um, people over in the communities uh, react to the film? Um, the community reaction has been really great. We, did, uh, we were up there in November doing community screenings. We did a big screening uh, in Fitzroy Crossing with Kevin and his family and about 120 other people. Another one in Derby at the Moen Jamaat Centre, a big one in Broome and one out in Albert's community at Beagle Bay. And overwhelmingly, we had a really positive response from the local people there telling us that they felt like we'd done the right thing by them, that we'd let them tell their stories and that we 
hadn't misrepresented it. We'd spent a lot of time up there trying to be as careful as possible and worked closely with the CALAC, the uh, Kimberley Aboriginal Law and Culture Centre, who we had an MOU with from the beginning, worked closely with Albert, with a lot of other leaders like Merle Carter, who's in the film, and you know, tried to tread very lightly, if if that's possible, as an outsider. And I think you know, we we got the buy-in from the community as overall, um, which has been great. We were invited to a lot of the AGMs and cultural festivals year in and year out, and I think that helped us a lot because we got to speak to so many people on camera and off camera. Mm. Um, you must have lots of loads more footage. So much more footage, so many stories that we followed and we couldn't fit in. We, you know, it's complicated to make a film with three different stories, let alone more than that. So we are going to at some point get down to cutting some additional material and putting it out on the web and, and so on because there's so many other amazing people to meet up there with amazing stories. It's also a campaign. I mean, I was just going to say that I've observed that in a couple of different films that have come out, like the uh, Putapara and the Rainmakers and a couple of the Motorkite Dreaming, those films, uh, it's almost like uh, Aboriginal people from different places are gathering people to come and do the work, the, get the messages out there, uh, even down to uh, um, musicians, uh, Aboriginal musicians who are actually there not to become big and famous but to actually be cultural ambassadors, that the, the fight is on and the campaign is on for everybody to actually uh, do what they can to make a positive change? Well, I really hope we can add to that campaign, to that discussion. You know, we've got a sort of impact strategy we're building around the film to try and bring attention to these issues. We're, we've, we're aligned with the uh, Save the Kimberley campaign and the Like Nowhere Else campaign, which is focusing on saving environmental, big environmental issues up in the Kimberley. And we're encouraging people to engage with traditional custodians when they're in the region to work with businesses up there, to go on indigenous tours, to, you know, to get to know people and spend their money in the places that needs it most. And we're also looking to raise money around the film so that we can take the film on a bigger tour of communities all around the north. So again, there's more information on our website about that, undermindefilm.com. Okay. And are you intending to take it overseas? We are. We're in the process now. Just last week, I made a fully subtitled version of the film. It's just so that, um, you know, people with second language to English can, can follow it. I did a little test screening with some friends uh, in the US recently and found that they struggled to understand some of the accents. So we're sending it out at the moment to uh, sales agents. Which is agents. a bit rich, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Considering that there's such variety of American accents. Well, that's anyway, just bye they're, bye. they're not attuned to our, our accents. So, so, yes, we're doing our best to get it out internationally. Yeah, good. Okay, good. Thanks very much for and good luck with this. Thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. You're on Solidarity Breakfast. We've come to the end. Uh, undermined Tales from the Kimberley. It's... Uh, at the Nova at the moment, and uh, we've still got a double pass if you, you're interested in it. Thank you very much for the person, listener, who rang in and took the pass, 94198377, and I can send it out to you. Uh, really worth seeing. Great film. What did we have on the program today? We listened to the, the Attage d'Affaire from... Uh, 
uh, Venezuela answering questions at an, an event that was held at uh, Trades Hall uh, last week. Uh, we also uh, listened uh, to a chat with Melody about a fantastic event called Woven, which is going to be on on uh, March 2nd, first at 1.30pm or 2.30pm at uh, the Gasworks, followed by This Is The Week That Was, and uh, f- finally with... Uh, the uh, last interview. We'll go out with Archie Roach. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.